Good evening, everyone. Well, that worked fast. You're all ready, eager and ready. My name is Jamie Boskett. I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO here of the Virginia Historical Society. And I'm thrilled to welcome you all to the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and particularly to this wonderful Robbins Family Forum for tonight's, for tonight's uh, talk. This is the 26th annual J. Harvey Wilkinson Jr. Lecture, and we're so thrilled to have you here. As many of you know, this lecture was named in memory of one of the leading figures in Virginia banking, J. Harvey Wilkinson, a man who is similarly remembered, particularly here, uh, for his deep interest in promoting education at all levels and for his lasting support of this remarkable 187-year-old institution. Uh, it's fitting that these lectures, featuring our country's most distinguished historians, writers, and public figures, are named in his memory. This series was made possible by generous gifts to the Historical Society by the Wilkinson family, and I'm delighted that members of the family are with us again tonight, and I hope that you will join me, please, in thanking our trustee and uh, the Honorable Jay Wilkinson and the entire Wilkinson family. And speaking of generous support, I'd also like to ask you all to help in recognizing the members of our historical society. We now have more than 7,000 dedicated members from across the Commonwealth in every United State and in many countries abroad. This place simply could not survive without your support. So would you wave if you're a member, please? All right, now put your hands down and clap for being a member. Thank you very much. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, a distinguished one at that. And as I do so, please, if you would, take this opportunity and silence your phones or any other electronics you have with, with you so we can all enjoy this wonderful lecture together. Dr. James Horn is president of the Jamestown Rediscovery Foundation at Historic Jamestown, the original site of the first permanent English colony in America. Previously, Jim served as vice president of research and historical interpretation at Colonial Williamsburg. He was the Saunders director of, international, of the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello, and before that, taught for 20 years at the University of Brighton in England. Uh, he has held fellowships at the Johns Hopkins University, the College of William and Mary, Harvard, and is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. I'm also proud to note that he is currently serving on the advisory committee for our upcoming marquee exhibition here, Determined, the 400-Year Struggle for Black Equality, which tells the story of the arrival of Africans in Virginia in 1619 and the four centuries that follow, uh, a critical milestone that is part of the Commonwealth's 400-year commemoration of several pivotal moments in our state's history. This exhibit will open in June of 2019 as part of this commemoration, and we're thrilled to have the expertise of Jim and so many others to help shape that, that important exhibition. Jim is a leading expert in early Virginia. He's the author of numerous articles and books, including A Land as God Made It, Jamestown and the British and the Birth of America, A Kingdom Strange, The Brief and Tragic History of the Lost Colony of Roanoke, and most recently, 1619, Jamestown and the Forging of American Democracy, uh, which has just been published. Copies are available this evening, and I know that he'd be thrilled to sign them for you. Uh, this is such a treat. I've known Jim for several years since my time at Mount Vernon and have always been so deeply impressed with his, his deep knowledge of early Virginia history, and I'm sure that uh, this evening will inform us all. So if you would please join me in welcoming Jim Horn.
Well, thank you, and uh, thank you all for coming out this evening. Um, as Jamie said, I'm a historian. I usually work with a period of years, you know, sometimes maybe 25 in 50. I've even been known to work on a century long period. I've never worked before on one year. So um, this is quite a challenge for me to make this lecture uh, extend for 40 minutes when I'm only dealing with one year. But I'm going to do my best because though it's only one year, it's a really, really good year and people don't know much about it. So um, that, that's really the, the topic. And it puzzled me when I began working on this book that people, the general public, um, didn't know much, uh, if anything, about what occurred in 1619. And I'm not being patronizing. It's, it's simply a fact that most people uh, have no recollection of this people in our, in our deep, deep past. 400 years is a remote place uh, in time. But 1619 is a really significant year, and that's what I'm going to try and convince you of uh, this evening. I think it's been lost in our historical memory. Uh, we have, for example, no question about 1620 and pilgrims, and then a decade or so later, Puritans. So they're firmly rooted in our collective historical memory. And we've even got a date we can attach to them. And as you may know, many Americans do believe that's when the English presence in North America uh, began. Or we have uh, John Smith and Pocahontas. Um, this is a little bit different because many people don't really have much of a concept of <laughs> when they were in Virginia other than it was very early. But Pocahontas uh, is one of the best known early American uh, Indian peoples, Indian person around the world, not, not just in the USA and that's got something to do with, uh, with Disney, but also, of course, other, other films and, and uh, lots of writing. So, so we've got these, these founding myths, if you like, for uh, New England and for Virginia. But 1619 does not feature uh, in them. Of course, we know um, that Virginia predates uh, the Plymouth colony by at least 13 years. It was set up as a commercial company, as a company of merchants. It's a company colony, uh, and it's a for-profit business. It's a private um, colony sanctioned by James I. It had to, they had to have the approval of James I. But this, this is a corporate enterprise, and corporations, then, as now, had their own laws, their own councils, uh, and their own uh, form of meetings that, that took place, elected officials. So the Virginia Company of London was set up in 1606, and uh, the uh, colony was established the following year. It was established in a place, this is a detail, you'll recognize it, I think, from the John Smith map of um, 1612 originally. Um, it was established in a place called uh, Sinacomaca, 
Um, that's the uh, power town word for, that they use for the territories they controlled all the way from south of the James River. I'm thinking quite, quite a long way south of the James River, actually, maybe even as far as, as uh, parts of North Carolina of today. Um, so we must recognize, I think, that this early colony for profit um, is in a place of a very, very powerful Indian nation. I won't say empire, but, but certainly nation, a collection of maybe 30 or so peoples um, who dominated this region. In fact, I think that is why the English chose to settle um, in this region, precisely because there was such a powerful Indian presence there. We have about uh, 15,000 um, Indian peoples, uh, and maybe of those, uh, perhaps about a third, just a bit under a third, were bowmen um, warriors. So um, it's a formidable fighting force as, as well as a uh, group of peoples in the region. That's all the way up to the Piedmont. <clears throat> So this is the first point I want to make, that established for profit, the uh, colony in the early years didn't make much of a profit. In fact, it very nearly failed on several occasions. Uh, the starving time was probably the darkest time of all um, because there was the task of um, accommodating the Indian presence, which is to say um, trying to come to terms with Indian peoples and leading into conflict in the first uh, anglo powhatan War of 1609-1614. Very difficult to, to be productive when a full-scale war is going on. Early Virginia then is a military regime and the first legal code in Virginia is Dale's Laws, a martial code, Laws Divine, Moral, and uh, Martial, um, which extended all the way from the outbreak of, of the war, 1609-1610, through to 1618. And I make this point because this is the context, this is the background to the great reforms of 1619. Earlier, the, the colony had suffered from arbitrary government, uh, property owned by the company. Um, this was not conducive, if you like, to uh, attracting the kind of numbers of immigrants that the Virginia Company needed. I think a lot of people are familiar that in 1619, the first representative assembly met at Jamestown. Um, and th that's fine as far as it goes because that was the capstone of, of the great reforms. But the great reforms of 1619 embrace what you see on, on the slide there. Uh, and they were, uh, the architect of those reforms is this man, um, Sir Edwin Sands. I'm just going to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, Sands, because he's, he's quite a remarkable character. And understanding the reforms that he proposed and understanding the ambition behind these reforms takes us some way to explaining, I think, the significance 
of 1619. Sir Edwin Sands was the son of the Archbishop of York, his namesake. Um, his father was a Marian exile, had uh, fled to Geneva during the rule of uh, Mary Tudor, the Catholic Queen. He had, so he was uh, initially, at least in his younger days, his father was a very um, hot Puritan. I suppose that's the way to put it. Puritan of, of hot temperament. Um, he accommodated, accommodated himself to the Elizabethan uh, church settlement and rose steadily through the ranks, Bishop of London, Bishop of elsewhere, and then finally Archbishop of York. What this meant for his son, Sir Edwin, was that uh, Edwin got a first-class education. He was educated in the best schools uh, and universities. He went to inns of court in London. He was educated, uh, I think we can call him one of the significant intellectuals of his day. He travelled extensively in Europe. I'm, I'm going to come back to that point because it's often overlooked with him and it's directly relevant to what I'm going to be talking about this evening. It's this European, English-European background. So, so he was a highly educated uh, man and had a uh, really a first-rate humanist education. He had a pretty quiet, uh, for, for much of his early years and even into middle life, midlife, he had a pretty quiet time of it. Um, until James I ascended to the, ascended to the throne uh, in 1603. And then with the beginning of the uh, Jacobean parliaments, he shoots into, uh, as meteoric, he shoots into public view and becomes the leader of the commons um, for the next uh, 20, 20 plus years. He's the leader of the opposition to the court party and, uh, in some instances, James I. That's also significant because he is uh, well-versed in, um, in constitutionalism, in the English constitution and protecting what was called at the time the ancient constitution, the basic and fundamental rights of English people. He knew that if Virginia did not undertake sub significant, substantial reforms uh, in 1618, 1619, the colony would have collapsed. There simply weren't enough people coming into the colony to sustain it. With the wars against the Indians, um, there was no possibility that Indian peoples were ready to be converted and not only to the Anglican Church, but, but also to the English nation and English ways. So he decides, and the company backs him, that the only way to sustain the colony and make it profitable was to transfer large sections of the English population to the colony of Virginia. So we're familiar with the Great Migration of the 1630s, but there was also a significant, you could say a very early form of the Great Migration 
in the years between 1618, 1619, and through um, the first half of the 1620s. You had to bring a settler population in from England to create uh, a viable colony and to create the profit that the company looked for. To do that, you've got to have incentives. What, what is it that would bring people to Virginia on the fringes of the Anglophone world? Uh, you've got to cross the Atlantic, pretty risky undertaking in, the, in these times. You've got to face unknown hazards, uh, hurricanes. We're, we're getting familiar with, with that over the past few weeks. But, but also um, pirates, the Spanish. Um, and then when you get to Virginia, how you're going to fare in, in the colony. So there's got to be a strong incentive as to uh, why you're coming to a place like this in this period. Well, uh, private property. It, it, it might seem, OK, well, surely they had private property in Virginia. But the truth is, as I mentioned earlier, the Virginia Company owned the land. Uh, some individuals, powerful individuals, had acquired large baronial plantations. But when we're dealing with origins, when we're dealing with firsts, one question you have to ask yourself is, why did they go this route? Why not choose another route? And there were other models. Virginia could have been another Bermuda. Bermuda was pretty much a, a pirate base owned and controlled, for the most part, by Sir Robert Rich, the Earl of Warwick. Uh, so Bermuda was, was one kind of model for an English colony, preying on Spanish shipping in the West Indies. The other kind of model, which had been thought about, theorized about, written about, was a kind of baronial society where a few very wealthy groups of merchants or individuals would own properties of 50, 60, 100,000 acres. Uh, tens of square miles, and populate them with English servants. Servants or tenants wouldn't own property. They would be able to work on these baronial estates. But the Virginia Company didn't choose either of those options. They chose to introduce widespread private property granted in small uh, divisions of land, small numbers of acres, 50 to 100 acres initially, to the settler population as a whole. Private property begins to see its way in Virginia before 1619, but it wasn't systematic. And Edwin Sands makes it systematic. If you'd lived in the colony for some time, you, got, you received this, this land. Property then, to... How do you protect that property? You have to have rule of law. I think that any democracy cannot survive for very long without the rule of law. Uh, when I naturalized, it was one of the questions I was asked in my, in my uh, examination, uh, the test I had to take to become a citizen, what is the rule of law? Well, I was thinking, well, the rule of law means that law rules. Um, seems you know, common sense, but it's that no one, of course, no one is above the law. And so what Sands and the company are saying is that 
We're going to get rid of this military government. We're going to get rid of martial law. And we're going to have rule of law based on English common law. There are, in fact, uh, any number of systems of law in England. Martial law was certainly um, employed in England at various times. Uh, and admiralty courts, all kinds of jurisdictions, manorial courts, um, uh, existed in, in England. Common law, though, was understood by a majority of English people. It protected their rights as, uh, as a people. So the rule of law would be based on uh, English law. No one would be above the law. And it would be changed to accommodate the peculiar circumstances that the settlers found themselves in in Virginia. Self-government. This, uh, this is where we come to um, the uh, General Assembly of uh, 1619. Why do you need self-government? The company had the authority to rule uh, the colony of Virginia, so why did they want to have a local form of assembly? Wasn't really anything like it in England. I mean, if you think about in England, in the early 17th century, you've got the House of Commons, the Lords, the court at Whitehall. You've got uh, assizes and quarter sessions, law courts in the shires, but you don't have many assemblies in the counties. Uh, probably the nearest to it is uh, the Scottish Parliament and Irish Parliaments. So setting up an assembly in America was hugely important as a precedent. And it's uh, pretty obvious what, what the reason was, really, that to gain people's trust, you had to go to a system, and Sir Edwin believed in this quite profoundly, you had to go to a system um, where the, the consent of the governed was in place. And that's precisely what he did. I'm missing a few slides here, so I'm just going to run you through some of this. This gives you a sense of the extent of property owning um, along the James River. Uh, and this is, you know, by English standards, this, this is quite extensive. If you're looking at from Point Comfort um, all the way up to the, the falls, in Richmond there. Falling Creek is, is up there at the top. Um, that's a pretty extensive bit of, bit of territory. Um, a good 100 to 120, 130 miles as the ship sails. So um, that is the distribution. Even in 1619, when the population of the colony was probably no more than about 1,200 to, to 1,500. You know, at the top there, the Great Charter, the Great Charter doesn't uh, survive, but the instructions to Sir George Yardley, the governor of Virginia, who is to implement these reforms, does, and it mentions the Great Charter, and the Great Charter was, uh, was, was uh, really the basis of some of these early reforms. Um, I wanted also to underline this uh, early form of local government, because this is the way in which so Edwin Sands, in a very, uh, in a very uh, systematic way, goes about thinking of how to govern a, 
a territory as extensive as, as this. So here we have the corporations. Um, and I won't read them out because they're pretty easy to, to read on the screen. But these are the four first boroughs. So he's thinking, like an Englishman, that these individual uh, areas, uh, corporations or boroughs, have their, their own forms of local government um, and everyone has a role within that. And of course, it's the reason why burgesses are called burgesses, because they come from the boroughs or corporations. Here is the um, statement from the Great Charter, from the instructions to Sir George Yardley, uh, written in 1618, um, really giving a sense that if you come to Virginia, you're going to be governed in pretty much the same way as you were uh, uh, or you have been so far in, in England. So um, just laws for the happy guiding and governing of the people. And I was very interested in the term the Great Charter and um, because Magna Carta is a great charter. Um, a little bit earlier, um, but, but nevertheless. Uh, so I went looking for the word Magna Carta in any of the Virginia documents, and I only found one. Um, if anyone has found more references to Magna Carta in these early documents, um, please let me know at the end of the lecture, and um, I'll be forever in your debt. But I've only found one reference here, and as you can see, that the reference is really talking about laws must be published, people must know their rights. This is really advanced thinking for the early 17th century. Nothing like this uh, elsewhere in Europe, and even in England, people didn't go out of their way to publicise the laws. You either knew them or you didn't. So there you are, but in the form, in a, in form of a Magna Carta to be published in the whole colony. That's the only reference we have from 1618. Here's the General uh, Assembly, and uh, we have a description of it uh, from uh, John Pories, who was Secretary of the Colony, uh, a description of what took place and a description of what occurred during the General uh, Assembly. And uh, it was a wide-ranging um, meeting. Um, I'll first describe some of the key characters here, as far as we know. Uh, Sir George Yardley is sitting up in the chancel with his councillors flanking him, uh, and at, sitting at the table uh, would have been the clerk and John Pory himself as secretary. He called himself Speaker of this First Assembly, which mimics the, the uh, Commons procedure. And in fact, the Assembly did mimic to some degree. It's a single chamber here with council and burgesses um, attending. Uh, but it did mimic some of the procedures of, of English parliaments. Now this is the one, so, we, so we've got private property, we, we've got rule of law and we've got self-government and consent of the governed. But this is a, an aspect of these great reforms of 1619 that I would venture to say is, is the least well-known of all of them. Virginia, of course, is a commonwealth still today. Um, 
And there are three other states in the Union that are also commonwealths, uh, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and Massachusetts. And for sticklers, there's also a territory that's a commonwealth, uh, Puerto Rico. Um, commonwealth in this context, in the early 17th century, had significant meaning. Um, I don't know really that it does today, but uh, certainly it did in this period. Uh, and its significance revolves around maybe 150 years of thinking uh, by intellectuals in Europe about how to deal with the issues and problems that they were confronted with in the late 15th, 16th, and early 17th centuries. And they were considerable. We have uh, in England uh, during the 16th century a period of rapid population growth, a period where uh, many peoples in the countryside are losing their rights to their properties, uh, common lands, and the level of poverty is an inequality is rocketing across the late uh, 15th and 16th centuries. And this um, quote here from Sir Thomas More kind of sums up some, some of this, pointing to the suffering of, of the poor. Unemployment and underemployment, vagrancy, uh, masterless men and women trooping the streets, bringing diseases and so on to the cities. This was the spectre of magistrates um, of the period and had to be um, dealt with. Um, religious wars in Europe. Um, the second half of the 16th century was almost a continuous period of warfare in Europe revolving around the great two blocks of powers, uh, Catholic and Protestant. Uh, and these wars, uh, uh, remembering that 1618 predates uh, 1618, just before what we're dealing with here is the outbreak of one of the most terrible wars of all, later known as the Thirty Years' War, where there's absolute devastation in Europe uh, um, throughout the, uh, this, this period. The, the English stay out of the Thirty Years' War as best they can, but nevertheless, the, the uh, awareness of this carnage that, that's going on in Europe is, is, uh, is a powerful one. So we come back then to a Virginia Commonwealth, um, and we come back to a godly Commonwealth, a Christian Commonwealth. And this is, this is what's so impressive about Sir Edwin Sands, remembering his background, father being the uh, Archbishop of York. He'd also traveled in Europe, looking at various religious systems, excuse me, looking at various religious systems and trying to devise a way by which different groups of people could live together uh, in peace and harmony. Different religious groups, could, could, that, could, that could be achieved. Where better, where better to test out that theory than in Virginia? And who better to test it on than the 
Powhatan nation. Pocahontas uh, is a story of redemption, redeeming Pocahontas, converting her to the Anglican church, and then ultimately the entire Powhatan nation. This was the first and the only effort by the English to convert, to convert not just a, a group of Indian people, but an entire nation of this, of this extent. And it begins with uh, a whole uh, period of church building. They're pretty modest structures, and I've put up this slide to give you a sense of that. This one is a theoretical clabbered structure. Um, but nevertheless, it's this, uh, this program of church building that's going on because the Commonwealth was to be a moral Commonwealth based on, on the Protestant religion and more particularly the Anglican religion. And the uh, Indians were to be part of that. They were to be converted, converted to Englishness and adopt English ways. They would become part of the English colony. So here we have um, Pocahontas, of course, that died in 1617, but the, the effort continues um, with the Powhatan chiefs, particularly Opikankano, to convert him and then his people to the Anglican <coughs> church. Commonwealth also implies other things. It, employ, it, it implies um, work and it implies a stable society. Uh, in 1619, there would have been seven men for every woman. Uh, so just, just think, think, think about that, seven men for every, for every woman. The company is well aware of this and is well aware that men are returning from Virginia. Once they'd made enough money, they'd come back to England. They were coming back because they couldn't marry and settle down. So in one of the first efforts to socially engineer a colony, the Virginia Company started recruiting respectable young women to send to Virginia uh, to marry the planters. And across uh, the period from 1619 to 1622, maybe about 150 um, young women, maybe as many as 200, were sent to the colony. No women no colony. It was essential to have the women and establish these uh, households and communities. The English men typically did not marry the Indian women. So these aren't the first women in the colony, um, but certainly this effort to provide these respectable young women, the records of many of them still survive in English archives. Um, it's a fascinating story and actually was the only profitable part of the Virginia Company's business across this entire period. <laughs> if you wanted a wife, you had to pay, and it was 150 pounds of tobacco, and the tobacco at this time was three shillings a pound. There's lots of complaints from poor planters. They couldn't afford the price of a wife, so. Work for all. Um, in England, there wasn't. There simply wasn't. There wasn't enough employment for the growing population in England. Um, so not that the Virginia Company encouraged tobacco, but tobacco was profitable. So work for all in the tobacco fields. 
work along the wharves of Jamestown, uh, along the docks down at uh, Point Comfort, along the wharves further up at plantations, work for all there. And what the Virginia Company wanted to do was create um, new industries, manufacturers, ironworks, glassworks, vineyards, uh, silkworks, manufacturers that they could export back to England. Virginia had plenty of wood, of course, and wood would be needed to power some of these, some of these industries. Uh, this didn't work out, but, but to some degree, um, the effort here is to create a society where there's the equality is really based on opportunity to find work, productive work, and at least set up um, something of a homestead to be comfortable and not reduced to, um, to dire poverty. So I'm going to shift gears here because it doesn't appear to me to be in Sir Edwin Sands' plans or the Virginia Company's plans in terms of work to uh, import captive Africans. And we've been doing uh, some significant work down at um, Jamestown to look at um, the presence of a woman. We don't know whether she's young, middle-aged, or old. We know nothing about her, except that she was named Angela. We know also that she came from what we would call Angola, Central West, uh, Central, um, West Africa, uh, and that she was captured um, during wars, colonial wars, in Angola, Portuguese troops and their African and the Angolan allies marched maybe 100 miles, maybe 150 miles. Similarly here, you can see in these coffles to the coast, to Luanda, which was the principal slave port, and then put on board a ship, something like this. This is a, I can't find a print of a 17th century slave ship that shows the way in which they were organized. But this is an 18th century print. Uh, it's a ship that um, had 350 slaves on. So did the ship that Angela sailed from Luanda. That was a big ship with 350 slaves upon it. This gives you um, some idea of what we're talking about in terms of a transatlantic trade um, from West Central Africa uh, to Cartagena and then up to Veracruz, some degree in the islands, but um, across this early period of the slave trade. Slave trade then is established 100 years, a century before Virginia. So it's, it's, it's the engine of the uh, Atlantic trade in this, in this period. Uh, the slave ship, St. John the Baptist, is encountered in the Gulf of Mexico by two English privateers owned by um, the Earl of Warwick, and they plunder that slave ship of about 50 to 60 Africans and bring them up to Virginia, um, where um, some of them, at least half of them, are put ashore at uh, various plantations along the James River. And here we have the residences of 23 of the earliest Africans uh, in Virginia 
um, from a census of 1625 that listed them. Small numbers. Bermuda, by this time, had more, had more than 100 slaves uh, because they were capturing them from Spanish ships um, in the Caribbean. Our person um, is... Angela is, is up here at Jamestown, owned by Captain William Pierce. And here she is, um, mentioned the muster of Captain William Pierce, and then you'll see down below here, Angelo, it says, but there's no question she's a woman, a Negro woman in the treasurer, the ship, name of the ship in which she was brought to uh, Virginia. I believe that the first Africans were enslaved. Uh, there's various opinions on this. Some folks prefer to think of those first Africans as indentured servants. And I believe that the English adopted pretty much the Spanish and Portuguese way of thinking of Africans. And this is the muster of Sir George Yardley, as you could see. And in the middle of it, just about Negro men, three, Negro women, five. So. Um, what you see in these documents time and time again, no name, um, but, but simply Negro, Negro man, Negro child, Negro woman. And this is where she lived. Um, there's the fort to, to your left, um, and she's maybe about, she's living on the William Pierce site, maybe about half a mile from, uh, from the fort and the third of a mile from the, the church or so. I mentioned, um, and I'm just going to briefly go through some of this, because I mentioned that to many people, 1619 is, is meaningless. And yet this was one of the most important years in our history. It's the year that sees the beginning of America's experiment with democracy and the year when the first Africans arrived in English America. So what are we doing at Jamestown Rediscovery to... Uh, add to the state's activities during next year to commemorate uh, 1619. And uh, we've got some pretty spectacular results. Some of you, if not many of you, will be very familiar with the Memorial Church. And I like this slide because you could just see um, the shadow of Captain John Smith. I won't say the church is in the shadow of Captain John Smith, but there he is in shadow at least. And you'll know that the tower is a 17th century tower, probably 1660s, maybe later than that, maybe even 1670s, and certainly the upper portions date to beyond Bacon's Rebellion of 1676. But that, is the, that tower is the only standing structure from the 17th century, and immediately behind it is the memorial church built uh, by the Colonial Dames, uh, National Society of Colonial Dames, in 1906-1907, and opened for the 300th um, anniversary of the founding of Jamestown. So this is an incredibly important historical site uh, because um, it, it, it's also the site of earlier churches, uh, one of them being the 1617 church where that first assembly was uh, held. So we have the good fortune of having images 
and I'm going to see if I can point these out. There, there are a group of ladies back here from the Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities, and they're doing archaeology. These are uh, some of the first archaeologists who worked on this site, and they're doing the archaeology in, in full skirts. So it's a very elegant form of, of archaeology um, that hasn't been seen since their day, I doubt. I doubt. <laughs> despite my efforts to. Uh, but here we have the, we're looking here towards the river through the church arch here. And this is, these are the foundations of the church. And this is a remarkable ledger stone, later called the Knight's Tomb. And you can see uh, uh, how it's slumped down here and been broken. And this again is this from the early archives of APBA, Preservation Virginia, um, we have this remarkable photograph of these early, very early excavations. The last time anyone saw the floor of the church, the original floor of the church, was back in the late 19th and early uh, 20th centuries. That was the last time. Um, we don't know uh, from documents what it looked like other than the uh, what you see there, um, that it was 20 foot by 50 foot and wooden. That's all we know. There's, there's no traveler's descriptions of it um, that we've found at any rate, uh, and no images, no paintings of it. The, the uh, Sydney King here from 1956-57 um, I'll come back to, but um, we've got nothing. This is a drawing from the uh, 1930s. So n very little to go on. If we're going to find out what was it like to sit in that first assembly, where was the place where democracy began in this country? We have to go to the archaeology. <clears throat> now, take a look at this, this slide here, because this is um, a couple of years ago, and uh, it looks all neat and tidy. There's the knight's tomb up here, chancel and the nave of the church here. I'm sure you're familiar with it, some of you. Um, so prepare yourselves for a bit of a shock, those who haven't been to Jamestown recently. Uh, once the archaeologists got hold of it, this, this, this is what we've got. Um, now, this is, a, uh, this is a piece of brain surgery archaeology, but there are some things that, that stand out, that stand out very obviously. Um, we have down here the original foundations. They used to be under glass and there used to be a sign there saying don't step on the glass because if you do you might fall into the foundations of the original church. Sorry, did not mean to do that. I'll come back. There we go. Um, so here we have the floor um, and as I say, first time anyone's seen it in more than a hundred years. And to make sense of it, um, this slide shows you how it all comes together. And particularly important is where the choir is. I can't see it, so I'm going to look down at this. Um, but the choir is where that first assembly met. That, that's the particular location. Um, based on the English word choir, of course, for, for an Anglican church, the western part of the chancel, the inner sanctum, 
uh, and then the inner chancel is just to, to, to the east of it, very typical, where the chancel step um, separates off um, the church from the ritual, the holy ritual, divine service. service. And you can see also that we believe we've discovered Sir George Yardley in a tomb here that was set in the choir and goes up to the um, chancel step. Um, we know the church was wooden. Um, these somewhat modest, humble slides give you a sense of what we think it was made of. It's timber-framed, of course, we knew that, but this is, what, this is plaster with, uh, with wattle or uh, lathe is, is a better word for it. So we now know that this was not a clabbered church, but was actually a plaster church, plastered on the outside and plastered on the inside. We, we've discovered the different types of plaster uh, from, from the archaeology, the interior and the exterior. It's a Tudor church, in other words. It would have looked something like this. This is Melville in Shropshire. Um, but, but this is what it would have looked like. It's got close studs, plaster in between. We don't know what the roof fabric was made of. Could have been clabbered. Um, and most recently, within the last week, we think that there's a fair chance that there w wasn't a tower like this, that there may have been an early uh, timber tower that, that uh, predates the stone tower down there. The knight's tomb, um, I mentioned. Here we are um, excavating it. This is the oldest ledger stone in the United States. Dates to about 1630. It's older than um, anything that we know of from the Spanish churches in the West. In the West. Um, and here it gives you a sense of the restoration that we've done on the, on the knight's tomb and what the... Uh, monumental brass would have looked like. This um, lady is Turi King. Um, she's best known for her work on Richard III um, and uh, the genomic research that underpinned it. She is now working with us. And what she's going to be working on is the tomb of um, Governor Sir George Yardley, with governor in the choir, uh, and the genomic research that's currently going on to establish his identity. We had to extract DNA, and um, you can only do that in a clean room uh, safely. So um, we construct, this is within the church, we constructed this timber and uh, plastic polythene cube and uh, got working on the church to, to make sure the, that Sir George was not contaminated. I'm sure Sir George wouldn't have liked to have been contaminated, and we certainly made sure that he wasn't. We don't know what he looked like. Um, like so much about this early period, we can only guess. This is the uh, detail from Sidney King's rendering of him. Um, but many of the men in Sidney King, who was a great artist, a truly remarkable artist, kind of had these little beards, sort of little moustaches and beards. And for the life of me, remind me of some of Errol Flynn's 
uh, great, great movies. But I do not mean to, to do a disservice to uh, Sidney King. But we have no contemporary portraits of Sir George Yardley. He is the second father of America's, the founding father of American democracy, along with Sands. We have um, uh, Bartholomew Gosnold. Um, I meant to, to show this slide missing his head, actually, because we don't know what um, Sir George Yardley um, looked like. Uh, but um, we can do a full reconstruction of Sir George Yardley from the genomic analysis if we find a match, a descendant, uh, and we found one in, in England. So um, we're going to be um, working with him, the descendant, to get his genome and, and then match it to the findings that we have. We've worked with Turi King, the University of Leicester, VCU, uh, Penn Dental, um, to do the uh, micro um, uh, oral biome. Um, we're working with the Smithsonian. Um, we have highly sophisticated uh, GPR, ground-penetrating radar systems, and um, FBI Quantico have been assisting as well. This is to say that archaeology is two things. Hard work digging. Um, we've still got plenty of holes in the ground, plenty of pits. You still have to shovel out the dirt. You still have to get in there with your trowels. That's called ground truthing, but it's becoming increasingly scientific. And the array of scientific methods that we brought to the church, and particularly to Sir George, or whoever he is, a uh, very important person, we know that from his location in the church, we use these, this battery of science now, hard science, applied science, to, to learn more about him. That's the way archaeology is uh, developing. How about Angela? There are no um, monuments to Africans at Jamestown. There's a sign that was put up a few years ago talking about the Middle Passage. We've got um, numerous wonderful monuments recording the first settlers, the first Burgesses, um, the first uh, uh, Reverend um, Hunt, Robert Hunt. Uh, we have a statue, one of only two in existence, of Pocahontas. Uh, we have a statue of John Smith, one of only two. We have no statues, no physical reminder of the African presence on, on the island. Uh, so we wanted to rectify that. We know where she lives, as I mentioned earlier. Um, this is the, uh, for those of you familiar with the island, that's the Ambler ruin, the Ambler man mansion. This is a slide from the 1930s when the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps worked on the site doing some uh, literally groundbreaking archaeology at that time. Um, sorry, I couldn't resist it. <laughs> uh, and um, there were many African Americans involved in that, in that dig. They were, without knowing it, digging on the site of the first African, one of the first Africans in English America. So there, there's a story that, that continues from Angela, 1619, all the way through to the Civil War, when free blacks lived in the Ambler Mansion, and then on to these early pioneers of archaeology on that site. And we're documenting 
all of that. And we're going to be very interested in working with Jamie and his team here um, to, to, to get a wider audience. Um, this is what we've done so far. Um, and you can see uh, there's nothing here that necessarily jumps out at you, but um, this is the first time it's ever been done at Jamestown. And we are attracting large crowds of people who want to know more about Angela, want to know her story um, from, from what we're finding in the ground. All we know about Angela is that her name and that she lived at this site in 1625. We don't know whether she survived for very long. Um, we don't know her age. And apart from general documentation that tells, tells us where she's from, that's it. So if we're to find out at least something about her, how she lived, what she would have seen, the landscape is still intact down at Jamestown. Um, this is the only way that we can, we can do it, through the archaeology. Very quickly, I'm running out of time. Um, we have to think about what, what all this means for us as a people. Um, now, so when we think about legacies, democracy, rule of law, consent of the governed, obviously it was very different. Democracy was very different in the early 17th century compared to today. Probably the major difference was, of course, that many people were excluded from the franchise, notably women, Africans, Indian peoples, and that didn't change for a long time. Um, but the principles that are the underpinning of our society, of our democracy, I'd venture to say were founded here in Jamestown in 1619. Particularly the rule of law, particularly consent of the governed. And when I think about this, I think about this in terms of an Anglo-American dialogue, which is, you can't see it, but I'm wearing my Anglo-American pin here. It's pretty obvious that I'm Anglo-American, but, but I'm wearing it for this. Because the kind of discussions going on in 1619 and around 1619 to set up the kind of democracy that existed in Virginia at that time, you hear those same voices echoing in the Houses of Parliament in the 1620s and then in the 1640s. You hear those same arguments echoed in the fields of the British civil wars of the mid-17th century, and those same principles are being argued about 120 years, 30 years later in America during the American Revolution and beyond. Democracy then isn't ever a finished item. It's always evolving, and it started in Jamestown. So this, this is something to, to give us pause. Democracy is precious. It has basic principles that have been contested, debated, and fought over for 400 years in the um, English-American world. Diversity, race, and inequality, because alongside those uh, remarkable principles that, that were first established 400 years ago, we have the uh, obverse of dispossession of the Indian population, the in Indian peoples, 
we have uh, attitudes that, that are um, that, that one can trace race, race attitudes towards race that can go back to uh, 1619. There's similar, um, you can find echoes of them even today. And most importantly, inequality. Um, remember that Sands, Edward Sands, wanted to set up a commonwealth because he believed that by serving the common good, you would serve all. And that was based on a society where people had opportunity, but there was also a basic equality. Um, we're still struggling with, as a people, I think, with some of these issues. And I'm hoping that 1619, but more importantly, 2019, gives us a chance to enter into a dialogue with one another and talk about these issues some more. Thank you very much. An interesting talk and a mem memorable year, for sure. Uh, you showed us some slides on Angela, the excavations, the church, and so on. There was a talk, some talk a while back, some controversy about a power line coming over the James River. To what extent will that impact your work? Um, not in the church or at the Angela site. Um, that controversy. Um uh, I'm fam familiar with that, actually. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but thank you for the question. It won't impact uh, where we are at Jamestown. If you go up to Black Point at the very eastern end of the island, the power lines and the more, more particularly the transmission towers, 298 feet tall, you'll be able to see those uh, in the distance. A very interesting talk. Um, I was always taught, and in fact, the signage upstairs in the new story of Virginia suggests that the ships that intercepted the slave ship, the Portuguese slave ship, were in fact Dutch ships, probably pirate ships. You suggested, I believe, that they were English privateers. I know the difference between privateers and pirates is pretty Fine. It's pretty limited, <laughs> yeah. but the difference is the difference between uh, what makes you think they were English rather than Dutch. Uh, we, we've got pretty uh, sound evidence now that these two ships were owned or partially owned by uh, Sir Robert Rich. Um, they were carrying one of them, the White Lion, was carrying letters of mark, um, letters of mark giving permission from a from a foreign. Um, nation at war with, with, with Spain, such as the Netherlands in this period, you could, as a privateer, you could uh, get a, a letter of that kind, which legitimized, at least in, in the European sense, not to the Spanish, but the, the Europeans, uh, other than the Spanish and Portuguese, any plundering that, that went on. Um, there, there's no question that both of the ship's captains, masters, were English, and uh, there's considerable evidence now, but fairly recent, um, because I, I recall, and I think in one of my books I mentioned the white line as being Dutch, but it was carrying letters from Dutch itself was manned and crewed and owned by the English. Thank you very much. Thank you.